Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Partial Historians. Join us as we trace the history of Rome from the founding of the city. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Red. And I'm Dr. G. Welcome. So, Dr. G, we are edging our way close to what is largely considered to be a momentous time for Rome. But before we get any further in that journey, what happened last time we were speaking? Oh, last time. It was a big time. Yeah. Uh, The Romans, they're doing lots of things. They finally decided that maybe they should seek outside advice for building a code of laws. They're like, you know what? If we're going to write the laws down... Maybe other people have written the laws down. Maybe we should check in. <laughs> the law about the laws. The law about the laws. Yeah. We're getting closer. And uh, finally, the patricians have agreed. The Senate is like, let's send a delegation of ex-consuls out to Athens to ask them about their law code. And this has been uh, about a decade in the making. Uh, I mean, not, not for us, <laughs> for the Romans. It's been about a decade in the making since they first started talking about writing down their law code so that it's not just seemingly the patricians that know what the what the rules and customs are that are guiding their society. So this is a pretty big deal. This is huge. Yeah. And we're finally seeing some movement on it, which suggests that the people at the top are finally taking note of the pressure from below, which has been coming from the tribunes and yes. the plebeians for quite a long time, that they want some transparency Please, I just want to know where I stand. Yeah, so and <laughs> yeah, I mean, this conflict of the orders has been going on for so long, but it's really only been in the last sort of 10 years that we've seen this real demand about the codification of the laws. And they've gone off to Athens, I believe, to look at the Code of Solon. It seems a bit out of date, but I'll let them. <laughs> That's okay. Hey, what, what else do they have to refer to? I mean, well, the thing is that if we're in around about 454 BCE, yeah. Yeah. we're talking the time of Pericles. True, that's true, um, yeah. The laws of Solon, oh, they're nice and all, but they're not the thing that Athens is currently really rigorously doing, <laughs> necessarily. This is true. Um, so are we getting some, like, uh, retrojections in our narrative about, like, what is good Greek stuff to hold on to? Oh, I, I definitely want to get into this, but for now, I just want to recap the one final thing that we talked about last episode. So within this conflict of the orders... Um, there emerges occasionally a hero, a hero of the underdog, the plebeians. The man born with teeth. Exactly. Last time we were talking about the Roman Achilles a little bit. I mean, he's been doing some amazing stuff. KG, but amazing stuff. And we dealt with the aftermath of that last episode, which was the consuls actually being held to account for seemingly, seemingly not doing the right thing with the spoils of war. Yeah, and so we see the rise of Sicius from military uh, subordinate um, and man of daring do on the battlefield yeah. um, to going into politics and trying to hold the big man to account. Yeah, it's so impressive this, stuff. This guy, Sicius Dentatus, has been... Um, in in your account, at least, <laughs> a major it's figure. Been very impressive in my very account. Impressive. Thank you, Dionysius. And as a result of what he did in your account, and seemingly it's for a completely different reason in my account, <laughs> the uh, the consuls ended up actually being fined quite greatly in in the last episode that we were talking about. So there's definitely some some sense that finally change is happening, maybe. 
but well, some baby steps, baby steps. Baby steps, baby steps. But it's a whole new year, Dr. G. So what year are we in now? It is 453 BC. Okay, so that means we've got some new consuls. Now, my consuls are Publius Curiatius and Sextus Quintilius. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, no. It's at... I always want to insert an I where there isn't one. Oh, no, there is one. No, okay, I did say it correctly. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, um, look, I, I can. That was seamless. seamless. No, seamless. Very yeah. seamless, yeah. yeah. We've got two consuls. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. We've got Publius Curiatius. Uh, we're not sure who he's the son of or who he's the grandson of, but he also is given a couple of additional names. Which I didn't want to say because I feel like <laughs> I'll be really childish. Um, but one of them is Fistus. Fistus. Yeah. Um, so that tells you everything you need to know about him. Yeah. And Trigeminus. Yeah. Or Trigeminus or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Anyway, one of those things. He's yeah. a patrician. No surprises there. Yeah. yeah Our other is Sextus Quintilius. Yes. Um, son of Sextus, grandson of Publius, um, and in sort of quotation marks or question marks, Varus might be another name that oh, he possesses. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah, also a patrician. All right. So I am going to flag that once again, Olivia's not giving me a huge amount of detail this year. Uh, however, I feel like that's because it is a bit of a, a quiet year. Uh, I feel like that's going to be a common thing amongst both our accounts. I could be overstepping because, you know, you really surprised me with all the Roman Achilles dentata <laughs> stuff. But in my account, it's actually a very quiet year because the tribunes are actually fine just hanging out because they're waiting for the return of this commission that has been sent to look at the Code of Solon in Athens. <laughs> And I so see, I see. they're like, let's just chill and wait for the response. Well, yeah. So there's not a lot of conflict, therefore, because of, you know, between the consuls and the tribunes because of that. And it also apparently was a really grim year all the way around. Uh, apparently, according to Livy, this was a year of famine and pestilence. Mm. Really, really bad, uh, affecting men and animals. So bad that people apparently, you know, aren't really able to do their usual work on the farms and that sort of thing. There's just lots of funerals happening. It's striking rich rich and poor equally. And there are some really important people who are struck down. So uh, the Flamen of Quirinus, apparently, uh, one Servius Cornelius is is dead. Um, The Augur Gaius Horatius Pulius. No, wait, sorry. I'm having real trouble with names with V's in them today. <laughs> Gaius Horatius Pulvillus oh. apparently also uh, is struck down. And finally, one of the consuls, Sextus Quintilius, <laughs> is also struck down as along with four of the tribunes of the plebs. And this is really the detail that I am getting in Livy. It's just about It's death. just a list of names of dead people. It's just, oh, God. It's just death. And luckily mm. for them, apparently there's no external conflict going on either, maybe because this is something that's happening, you know, in the region. Um, but, yeah, it just seems to be a year of gloomy non-action. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, look, it sounds like mostly we've got a parallel here. Okay. But Dionysius of Halicarnassus... Uh, Puts in a little bit of zest, of course, yes. um, to spice things up. Yeah, because yeah. uh, there's nothing quite like a pestilence, is there? <laughs> well, I mean, this does tie into what we've been saying all along, which is that by the time we get to the middle of this century that we're dealing with, 
academics are fairly certain that Rome was going through a really tough time. Um, They're fairly sure that it was economically not great because there's not a lot of temple building going on that sort of peters out and I think around the 480s. And there's basically very little um, Greek pottery seemingly being imported. There's like no remains for this time. And it's around the it's around 450, 440, so it seems to get really serious. Um, and that they're pretty sure there is definitely famine and tough times that people are going through. So it makes sense that it's reflected at least to some degree in in Livy and Dionysius. Yeah, and we get this sense, I think our perception of like just the the massive consequences implied by a pestilence has really been magnified um, recently as well. So this narrative, I think, is really going to hit home in the sense that Dionysus uh, talks about how almost all of the slaves Mm -hmm. uh, die. And he also notes that about one half of the citizens' lives are lost. Wow. And we can go back to... um, Livy's census records actually he notes that uh, I mean, obviously there's huge questions about whether we should trust any of these figures <laughs> I for think this kind of always trust Livy Dr. G <laughs> I'm just flagging that uh <laughs> that we're really not sure as historians the accuracy of any of the numbers before sort of like the late third century yeah but we're in the fifth century at the moment and Livy noted that in 459 there was a census taken and that the census numbered 117,319 citizens. I remember it well. Yeah, that's a very specific number. Thank mm. you, Libby. Um, so we're talking about a loss on, on that calculation, if we could take that number from Livy and apply it to what Dionysius is telling us here, that we're looking at a loss of life of about 50,000 people. Which is absolutely huge. Which is absolutely huge. And yeah. that's not even accounting for the fact that they also suggest that most of the slave population is taken out by this pestilence. And they wouldn't be included in the census. They weren't included in the census, and chances are they outnumber the citizens, even in this time period. Yeah. So. That's, that's a big question, of course. We don't really mm. know how many slaves there are in Rome at this point in time, but we certainly get we certainly get their presence being attested, you know, in little bits and pieces throughout the sources. So definitely, I would agree, there's a significant number of people here. Yeah, yeah we're talking about a massive loss of life, and... Um, usually one of the things that happens immediately when you come across a pestilence in your written material is people always want to know, well, what was it? Um, Can we identify what this pestilence was? Um, Some kind of disease? What kind of virus? What are the consequences of it? And usually it's not possible to tell from the written record. Yeah. Um, These people are too far away from the thing from when it happened. And they also don't have the rigorous sort of medical framework that we use today. So they will often give you a sense of some of the symptoms yeah. and you still won't be able to really narrow it down because they're quite common and we just don't know. So we know that people are dying. It seems to be also killing animals. There is discussion about um, husbandmen. So the people who work with flocks, they're falling ill and their animals are also falling ill. Mm. So it spreads and it seems to, in Dionysus' account, he seems to suggest that it, it starts in the city and flows out into the countryside. Oh, because I was going to say, it almost sounds like, a, it does sound like a bit of a COVID-19 parallel in that it's, it sounds a bit like it's coming from animals and spreading to people, but if it comes from the city first... Yeah, no, they, they seem to, su- yeah, he seems to suggest that it's starting in the city or yeah. at least they notice it in the city mm. and, and then they notice it in the countryside. Right. We don't know which way around this is going. Well, because of course, 
course, in the city, like like again in the COVID nineteen situation, it probably spreads way more quickly, and there's more people around to notice. So it's very possible that it came in from the countryside, you know, transferred some transmitted somehow with like you know someone bringing in their wares or whatever in a market or something like that, and then you see it take off in the city because you've got people living in much closer quarters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And part of the trouble seems to be as well that it's super contagious. So yeah. people start off trying to help people when they get sick. Sure. Then they catch it and then they die. Right. And when people start to see that pattern, they then start to just abandon people to die. Yeah. So okay, this yeah. becomes this becomes pretty bad because you could fall ill um, in the initial sort of wave um, and then your family tries to help you, they all fall ill. And then in like secondary scenarios from that point onwards, people are just abandoning their homes and leaving people to die. And then going back and retrieving the bodies afterwards. Yeah. This means that there's also a lot of bodies. Um, Yeah. And this is a huge additional sort of public health issue. Absolutely. um, To have this many bodies because what do you do with them? Where do you put them? Yeah. Not inside the city. I know that much. (laughs) Sorry? Not inside the city. No. It can't be inside the pomerium. That is forbidden. (laughs) Uh, We don't know how much they're paying attention to the pomerium at this point. I I would imagine that the Romans are... I actually didn't check this because this wasn't mentioned in my account. They just said, you know, lots of funerals are taking place. But I would imagine by this stage, the Romans are already cremating their dead. They are. Yeah. Yeah. And they do that up until a certain point until there's too many. Yeah. 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 So the the rate of death starts to outpace their, their capacity to do cremation. Oof. And it's just sounding really grim. <laughs> it is really grim. Yeah. Then they start to go for mass burials. Right. Um, yeah. That becomes overburdened very quickly as well. Yeah. And then they start to throw bodies into the river. Oh, no. This is terrible. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> terrible idea. Uh, as they find out almost uh, immediately. How? I mean, even I, I understand that they don't have the understanding of medicine and the way the body works and the way disease spreads that we do now. Mm. But at what point is having a dead body in your water source a good idea? I it, mean, it's a terrible idea. Yeah. Watch the hell. Yeah, yeah. And, but you know, if one person is kind of like, well, I need to get rid of this body, you know, I'm just going to do it. it. You yeah. know, it's just one body. It's a huge river. She'll be right. Like, you look at the Tiber, it's reasonably wide. You're like, you know, the river's not going to notice. And it's flowing that way. It's flowing away from the city. The fresh water is coming from the mountains over there. Right. It's going to be okay. Um, they're mistaken about this. Yeah. Um, the bodies start to wash back up again. Okay. Um, in uh, a worse state than when they were put in. Of course, well, yeah. Yeah. The, the stench is apparently terrible. Um, and that also has health consequences because this is the river that they drink from. Yeah. Um, there is a, a, a sort of a really complex spring system within Rome as well of natural springs. Sure. Um, so not all water sources are tainted, but certainly people drinking from the river are also now getting sick. Yeah. For other reasons. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so disgusting. Ugh. It is pretty gross. I've honestly got goosebumps on my arm. Look at it. Look at it. <laughs> <laughs> that was true. Goodness <laughs> me. Uh, yeah, so this is a really bad time for Rome, and Dionysius does not shy away from these details at all. Mm-hmm. Um, talks about the contagion with the sheep and the other animals, um, so letting us know that it's spreading into the countryside from his perspective. Yes. They become so concerned that they try to develop new uh, rituals in order to appease the gods, because clearly there's a huge rupture with the Pax Deorum. I know. I was going to say, I'm actually really surprised that Livy doesn't talk more about that angle, especially because we've got a Flamen dying and an Augur dying. 
Um, and he and he talks a lot. He does mention a lot about you know this is something that the the great families, and I'm presuming he means patricians there, are, are suffering here. So I'm surprised there isn't more, you know, more talk about the religious angle. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean this does come into play a little bit. Okay. Um, for Dionysius. Yeah. So they start sacrificing. Um, and doing expiations and creating innovative ritual processes, apparently. But when these don't seem to have an effect on the course of the pestilence, they're really abandoned quite quickly. And also, obviously, people like priests uh, are also unwell. So yeah. who's going to be doing the ritual process of anyway? Course. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have some terrible news for you. Uh-oh. Uh, obviously, you know that Sextus Quintilius dies so one of our consuls dies yes um he's replaced by a suffolk consul ah yes i do i do know about this but please tell me anyway (laughs) our suffolk consul tragically is spurious furious i know i was excited (laughs) to see his name he returns briefly but then he also he also dies yeah yeah he does Uh, not last long let's have a moment of silence (laughs) for spurious furious only thing that gives me comfort in this time is that the Romans keep naming everybody the same thing. <laughs> We're going to be lucky because there will be more Spurii Furiae. <laughs> <laughs> that is the great hope. That is my hope. Did anyway. he have a son? Praise be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, poor Spurius Furious. So he gets bumped off as well. Uh, I get uh, four tribunes, which I think corresponds to the number in Livy. Oh my god, a number matching up that almost never happens. Incredible. I know. And many worthy senators. Yeah. (laughs) Which, to be fair, could be plebeians too. We're not really sure at this time. It's more likely that they're patricians. It seems pretty unlikely they'd be plebeians at this stage. It does, it does. But Uh, it's possible there are some academics out there that think there is a mix. Certainly, certainly. And we need to hold on to that possibility for the next few years at least because that will become important. But I I agree with you. Hold that factoid in mind, listeners. It does seem more likely that they are patricians. It seems pretty likely. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Uh, But you never, ever know. You never know. Um... Meanwhile, out in the wilds of the rest of Italy, the Aquians seize this as an opportunity. Interesting, because I have got a deliberate mention that Rome's enemies do not attack in this year. Interesting. Okay. Oh, but they think about it. Oh, <laughs> oh okay. boy. Okay. Oh, okay. boy. Okay. okay. They think about it. They, they're like, this is going to be great. The Romans are really on the back foot with this pestilence. Yeah. Let's get in there. So they send envoys out to everybody who's also hostile to Rome, being like, we've noticed <laughs> that they're not ready to fight. See, I'm just going to say one thing to the Aquins right now. Social distancing. Mm. I mean, have mm. you heard of it? Yeah. If it's a pestilence, I don't think you want to be getting up on close with Romans in any capacity. And maybe it only affects Romans. Huh? Huh? <laughs> I'm an Aquian. It's going to be fun. <laughs> I'm not wearing a mask. Um, anyway, this doesn't go well for them. Yeah. Because it turns out that they start to lead their forces out of the city and they're making the preparations and they're marching through the countryside. And guess where the pestilence is? In the, the countryside. countryside. Yeah. yeah. Um, so no surprises. 
their armies get sick. Um, the pestilence then falls upon their soldiery, which then they take back to their cities. And then all of a sudden, Aquians and all the rest of the hostiles to the Romans also catch the pestilence. At the risk of dating our podcast even further. <laughs> I feel like there's a lesson in there somewhere, Dr. G. <laughs> ah, yes. Well, yeah. isolation could be useful. Yeah. Uh, think about it. Well, uh, it's, it's interesting because I am going to go off on a slight tangent here because we're talking about pestilence and all. But it is interesting. I, I have listened to a few podcasts and read a few articles and that sort of thing about, you know, as I'm sure anybody with interest in history has, about plagues and pestilence of times past and it is interesting that one of the things that has often been practiced as a remedy is isolation and social distancing. Uh, and obviously, sometimes that's practiced in really horrible and cruel ways. But at the same time, it is effective for diseases that are highly contagious. It is. It <laughs> yeah. is. And you begin to see people very readily start to practice it when they see the consequences of the contagion themselves. Yeah. It usually takes some visual evidence. The trouble with that is that if you've had the visual evidence, you also may have been too close <laughs> and you may have also already caught the contagion. Yes. yes. So there is this really complex mechanism because we've got this idea that Dionysius is flagging that people see what happens um, when you hang out with people who have caught the pestilence yeah. and then they start to abandon people. And that yes. is effectively a self-imposed isolation where you're like, you know yes. what? I'm staying away from all of those sick people because I do not want to get that thing. And that's the, that's the cruel way of doing it. Obviously, yes. obviously we would hope that these days people, as I think a lot of people are, are helping out the more vulnerable members of communities um, in, a, in a way that's safe for themselves and safe for that person. But there are ways of doing it. But of course, I totally understand in this time in this time period where you don't really understand disease the way that we understand it, and you therefore aren't really going to have those safety measures <laughs> in place. Yeah, and it's really tricky to know how you should best save yourself or protect yourself from this kind of thing. Absolutely, without a real understanding of how you know contagion operates. And you also, even if you understood it, you you don't have hand sanitizer and no. things like that. So. Can you actually protect yourself? And you yourself? should not wash in the river. No. <laughs> no. Do not recommend. Splish, splash. I was taking a bath. <laughs> Something bumped to the stuff. Uh, yeah, so don't do that. Uh, yeah, so it seems that it spreads to the land of the Aquians, the land of the Volskians, and the Sabines. Well, that's handy. That's mm. knocking out all of Rome. Very areas. convenient yeah. for Rome, yeah. I must say. Yeah. The gods are certainly working in their favour. Explains how Livy got to the place that he did. <laughs> <laughs> um, part of the big consequence for this whole pestilence, though, for the people that remain, yes. is that because of the the nature of it and just how many people were involved and the complexities in trying to navigate that and stay alive mm. is that the land doesn't get cultivated. So that's definitely something Livy mentions as well. Yeah. Yeah. And this means that this is something that I think in this modern era where we find ourselves sort of like largely detached from the the process of food and the production of it and the whole chain of how oh, it comes into being. Well, I mean, anything. Clothing. Yeah. I mean, everything is just so easy to access for people in our situation. Not everybody around the world, but... No, but yeah. if you're living in a relatively wealthy country and you have access to the internet, chances are you're very removed from all of the processes that go into producing any particular good, Absolutely. food or otherwise. Yeah. But... In something like ancient Rome, if you don't till the field and if you don't plant the crop, next year you don't have food to eat. 
Yeah. And I think that that's actually something, that's actually something that I worry about for our society, about us being too detached from that process, because I think we do have an illusion of plenty um, because of the way that capitalism and consumerism have shaped our society and our world. And it's not that they're, obviously it's, in, it's enjoyable in the moment, but I do really worry about us being so detached from this process of where our things come from and what it takes to make these things. And the, and the fact that we really need to start waking up to the fact that it is not a never ending supply. Yeah. There is, there is only so much that can be produced. Yeah. And, and the way that we're producing stuff is so damaging to the environment that we really, I mean, even putting aside something like climate change, which obviously is threatening our existence as a whole, but we, the way that we are farming and the way that we are burning through resources and our population rising it, it is actually a real concern. So even though it's horrible to, to read about these sorts of things in ancient Rome, I do think there is, in a sense, a harsh benefit to people actually having to face the reality of what these sorts of events entail because I worry that we are facing crises in this world now and we cannot... We can't even see them coming. We can't. That's the problem. That's why That's mm. why there's not more action being demanded and taken. Although, although there are people out there who, you know, I mean, so grateful for the people who put themselves out there for courses that are worth fighting for uh, all the time. Um, and, you know, particularly, you know, school strike activists, you know, well done you. Um but not enough people are yet on that bandwagon, actively out there demanding for change. And I think it's because of this illusion that it's not something that's actually going to happen. Yeah, and as yeah. long as you can easily gain the supplies that you need, then you don't have to ask that many questions. No. And for the Romans, this is really front and centre because Absolutely. they can see the coming famine. Absolutely. You know, the yeah. people who live through this pestilence yeah. are well aware that the fields have not been cultivated. Yeah. That... What comes next is a season where you don't have produce and you've got to find another way to acquire it. And of course, living through a time of plague, being malnourished just makes you it's more not, vulnerable. It's not great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like this, like there's the first hit yeah. and then there's the second punch, which Absolutely. is like, welcome to famine. Um, so that's the, that concludes 453 yep. Uh, yep, for, me for me, Yeah. which means that we can... Roll on into Ooh, 452 got, BC. I've got about another five sentences for you, Dr. T. <laughs> right. I'm very excited to hear all of them. Are you interested in ancient history and the occasional pun? If so, Ancient History Hound is for you. Hi, my name's Neil, and I'm the host of Ancient History Hound, a podcast which covers a range of topics across ancient Greece and Rome. Whether you're someone new to it all or a seasoned veteran, I've got you covered. Find Ancient History Hound wherever you get your podcasts from. Alternatively, visit my website, ancientblogger.com, or find me on Twitter, at ancientblogger. Okay, so let's start off 452 New Consuls. Okay, now I think there's going to be a bit of controversy about some of the namings here, but the ones that Livy names... Uh, Gaius Menenius, we've heard that name before, as in the Menenius, huh? and Publius Cestius Capitolinus. Um, now, I think that it's the Menenius that there might be some different names for 
as in yeah what did yeah. you say is uh Gaia. Gaia. I, believe, I believe there might be some alternatives. <laughs> yeah, look, Gaius didn't even come up in my record. Um, he's called Lucius Menenius or Titus Menenius. Titus is the one I was expecting you to say. So. Mm. <laughs> yeah, He has many names um, and he is the son of Agrippa mm. and the grandson of Agrippa, mm-hmm. a Lanatus, apparently, mm-hmm. um, a patrician. And then I think we pretty much agree on Publius Cestius, yep. son of Quintus, the uh, grandson of Vibulus, um, Capitolinus Vaticanus. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Sounds like he comes from the hill across the river. You know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying, <laughs> Dr. G. <laughs> uh, another patrician. Yes. Um, it's very exciting because these two consuls are like, okay, it's a disaster. We've just had this whole plague happen absolutely um the pestilence seems to to peter out it's very convenient the way they only last for one year <laughs> yes yes narratively convenient yeah um, um, but it might make sense because the consuls come in about may right so in northern hemisphere we're talking the weather is warming up things are kind of nice sure um you expect uh, pestilences to be more vigorous and difficult to combat in cold weather when people are more indoors. That's true. That's um, true. Whereas when you're outside in the sunshine, you can run away with, from people with a plague. You're like, oh, <laughs> run away, hot-footed run away. over here. <laughs> Don't want to hang out with those guys. Okay, so in my account, once again, and perhaps unsurprisingly, there is no external threat, probably because everyone is dealing with the aftermath of this pestilence. <laughs> I can't, can't stand up. Yeah. Can't, can't fight. Got no grain. Finally, some common sense. However, however, Dr. G, we are so tantalizingly close to this big moment we've been edging our way towards. And there are signs of change afoot. Ooh. Disturbances are arising on the home front, and that's because <laughs> the people that went on holiday to Athens to check out that law code that they have over there are back. Turns out the pestilence didn't make it to Greece. Praise be! Oh, yeah. They're back, baby. <laughs> They're back. Does that does, does that happen in your account as well? Uh, yes, I believe so. Okay, yeah, cool. certainly, certainly things. Yeah, things of that nature. There are definitely more things that happen. Um, no, no, well, I've got a little bit more, not a lot. So <laughs> strap in. Okay, so of course, with the commission from Athens being back, the tribunes now are starting to ramp up, and they are starting to say, "Okay, we were patient. You said you wanted to check out this other law code." That has been done. The time has come. You can run away from your responsibilities no longer. Yeah, exactly. Um, So they start talking actually seriously about how they're going to actually do this. Okay. Now, before this sounds I... almost unfeasible. Like, just just wait, listeners, because this has been a decade in the making. Yeah. Are they actually going to do something? Well. Definitely, there seems to be a concession being made that, yes, we are going to make a step towards this. (gasps) Yeah, I know. And they decide that a way that they could do this would be to appoint Decimvers, or 10 men, um, who would have special rights, there would be no appeal against them, and there would be no other magistrates for that year whilst they were in play. That's pretty intense. Yeah. There's a bit of a debate, though, that arises because there is a question about whether these should all be patricians or whether plebeians should actually be allowed to take part in this. Now, before I go any further, I do have a little bit more detail on that, but before I go any further, 
I do want to flag some things. <laughs> Please do. Okay. I'm, I'm sensing flags. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So first of all, we said at the beginning of this episode that we were going to flag this whole idea of going to Athens to check out another law code. Mm-hmm. I would like to talk about that now, Oh, yeah, okay. If that's okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. So you're totally right in saying that it's a bit surprising that they would go to these lengths. <laughs> um <laughs> And that's because there are, not, not just because, as you say, Solon is a little bit of time ago. Yeah. Yeah. You know. um, but it's also because there are Greek colonies in southern Italy. Yeah, you don't have to go far. Let's go no. on a summer holiday south. No. Um, so there's a question mark there about whether you actually need to go to Athens. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm being sent away on a commission to talk to Greeks. I'm obviously going to (laughs) Athens. Um, So that seems a bit suspicious. Um, It seems as though maybe our sources are trying to echo some stuff that happened in Greece in their accounts of what is happening at Rome. Um, Mm, How convenient. Exactly. Uh, and I imagine that this is something that you also would get having a Greek source or like something that would also be something that Dionysius is interested in because he seems constantly interested in drawing connections between Greece or Greek culture and customs and Rome. Is he going down this track as well? Look, it doesn't feel like it in a in a particularly strong way. But yeah. I'll, I'll wait because I'm kind of, I'm interested in where this is going from your perspective yeah. to see to what degree Dionysus is really matching up with this. Yeah. Well, I guess the thing is that there seems to be a pattern where there's a, a sense of, of crisis amongst an aristocracy. And this then leads to legislation. Now, we've been talking about this legislation for a while. It's like a big milestone that's happening. But... The weird thing about it is, as we'll see when we get to it, so I won't go into too much detail now, it doesn't entirely really seem to address the issues that we've been talking about for all this time. I mean, yes, they do seem to be written down. So, okay, check. Definitely some stuff gets written down. Is it yeah. the stuff that we're expecting to get written down? Largely, no. <laughs> exactly. So it, it seems as though um, what's potentially happening here is, yes, there is a certain concession being made to a certain extent, but it's probably actually more the aristocracy trying to preserve their power. Um, Well, that is a big surprise, I have to say. Shocking, I know, yeah. (laughs) Um, And the legislation, therefore, it's not really a win for the plebeians. Yeah, look, I put it to you that if you have a 10-man group uh, taking absolute power and no other magistrates are allowed to hold power for that entire year... And somebody, somebody, don't want to suggest who, but somebody (laughs) might be missing out on some representation at law. Yeah, yeah. So, and then when you look at the 12 tables, they don't really show a strong similarity with the law code of Solon. (laughs) Um, Devastating. They they went and found the ideas and they're like, you know what? No. (laughs) Yeah, so it, it almost seems as though... This is a made-up thing. Something fishy is going on. Yeah, most academics that I have read don't really believe that there was a trip to Athens. I'm sorry to say. That is very disappointing because that is what I'm living for right now. (laughs) Yeah, so, uh, yes, I'm just going to flag that that doesn't seem to have really happened. Um, And, yeah, it does seem to be trying to draw connections to Greece 
for some reason and also trying to echo a larger pattern of you know a time of crisis you know you got you got to move away from a certain type of government <laughs> monarchy etc um, and then there's a certain crisis that happens and then the legislation is coming out of that crisis. And I think this is the thing as well that it's worth keeping in mind is that the Greeks and the Romans have some pretty clear ideas that they develop later on yeah. from like in like the second and the first century BCE about political theory yeah. and how governance operates yes. and, and the cycles of it. And uh, one of the famous ones that that most students of history have looked into is Polybius. Yes. Who talks about a cyclical nature to the way that governance works. Absolutely. And you come around into various crises that lead to a, another particular thing. And that works for a while until the next crisis, which inevitably leads to this thing. And it's positioned as there's a very clear sequential uh, rotation through a cycle of types of government, followed by a subsequent crisis, which presages the next part coming in absolutely and so this idea that you switch from a monarchy into a republic obviously there's a crisis in between that and to go from something that is a rule by by an oligarchy into something that's more democratic you've got to have another crisis and so are we just seeing a layer of narrative onto this sort of past which is kind of dimly understood and appreciated and for which we do have some physical evidence in the 12 tables that succumb. Yeah. Um, that would allow us to sort of try and smush what we don't know about this period into that pattern of our understanding of governance that comes later on. I think that's definitely what they're trying to do here. I think they're definitely trying to draw a loose parallel with what Greece specifically, I shouldn't say Greece, what Athens has been through earlier. I think they're now putting that onto Rome as like a loose pattern of what is happening in terms of the, as exactly as you say, the cycles of what they're going through in terms of changes in government. And this is the sort of thing that obviously Dionysius of Halicarnassus would be pretty invested in as a Greek writer for a Greek audience. Yeah. Being like, look at how Rome is kind of just like the baby Greece. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, they're going to grow up and they're going to be just like us. Yeah. We yeah. influence them from the inside out. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So... In terms of, like, the way that Dionysius structures this narrative, he really focuses in on, first of all, the consequences of the pestilence. Mm -hmm. uh, how do they resolve the issue of the fact that there's nothing to harvest in this next year? Tricky, tricky. Yeah. yeah. Um, apparently, they buy a lot of corn. Um, okay. Corn here is, means grain. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Buying a lot of corn with public money, and some of it is bought with private money, so you've got some... Uh, grain speculators operating in the market as oh, well, oh bumping God. up the price. Speculators. The worst. <laughs> yeah, but you definitely need to buy food, so what are you going to do? Exactly, yeah. And um, they've also got a lack of um, meat as well from uh, the yes. flocks that they haven't been able to maintain because oh, either the animals have died or, the, say, or yeah. the husbandmen have died. Yeah. Um, so that's been a problem. Sure, yeah, sure, like the animals have all... Yeah. yeah, yeah, you don't want to eat that meat. No, uh, as we have learnt again. Yeah. <laughs> don't do it for you. Don't do it, guys. Yeah, uh, and they don't. Um, but this means that everybody's a bit hungry. Um, yeah, and 
but and also a bit weakened. And it's at this moment that the ambassadors come back from Athens, and I, I sort of see them as like you know, uh, you know, patrician strutting in a bit of gold, you know, mm. here and there, and sort of like walking into a city that has been absolutely devastated since they last left it, being like, guys, we're back from our holiday, <laughs> and everyone's like, uh, I need, we've been dying. How are you? Grain. Yeah. <laughs> Did you bring any bread with you? Yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh, guys, you look unwell. <laughs> I really recommend a AK. Yeah. Have you thought about Sunshine in the South? <laughs> um, so, yeah. So this is a weird sort of narrative move. Yeah. Um, and it seems just like they just come back. And apparently, now this is the thing that Dionysius tells us, is that they have come back from Athens and the Greek cities in Italy. So actually, like, right. they've, they've done the trip that way. Where Which they've gone down. Which make more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's kind of, it makes more sense, actually. Yeah, I was like, yeah. And maybe, if you were clever, you never went to Athens at all. It's fine. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people doing law at the moment that you could have a chat with. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. And then they're like, okay, well, it must be time to try and put all of this together. And this is where this starts to get complicated. Yeah. And they're like, how are we going to bring this all together? Definitely. Um, because we have this sense in which... Uh, the consuls of this year are kind of like, don't want to make a wrong move here, but also we just became consuls. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we don't really want to give up our power to yeah. other people. And, and the suggestion seems to be that there should be this, you know, group of 10 men, this, this decim veers. Yeah. Um, and they're kind of like, oh, so we'd have to step down. And everyone's like, well, yeah. And they're like, oh, I don't know if that's really in our jurisdiction, actually, because like we've just been given this majesty and everything. We have to hold it for a year. That's kind of like the law. And everyone's like, oh. Speaking of the law. <laughs> Speaking of the law. Interesting. <laughs> Did you know that we're trying to write it down? Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, well, I'm not really sure if, you know, and they're really trying to delay things because, mm. and this is a bit of a patrician tactic in general that we have seen. Absolutely. Um, so they are trying to delay things as well. Um, but they're also kind of, they do have some leg to stand on in the sense that they're supposed to hold that majesty. They can't just cut it off themselves. Well, hell, we've been waiting for over 10 years. What's another year? <laughs> Patience, my friend, yeah. makes it all the more sweeter. Yeah. So they're like, okay, what we should do is we should elect the magistrates for the next year. Yeah. That's what we should do. Okay. And we'll get that ball rolling. Right. But before they come in into their magisterial power they can consult with the senate about maybe giving up that power um for as in the how they're ten. supposed to give it up or as in yeah so this is kind of where it gets hazy right because they're kind of like actually because we're already in our magistracy we yeah. can't do this we okay. can't just step down right. what we can do is we can do our job and we can get the election happening so that there's some consul designates for next year. And we can do that early so that then they can liaise with the Senate about what best to do in, instead of should, oh. should they step into that majesty themselves right. or should they somehow build a different structure. But I think those consuls, those consul designates for the next year should be the ones to do that, not <laughs> gotcha. us. Sorry, I thought you meant they were holding elections for like being decimbears. No, like, ah, no. Okay. Yeah, no, they're pushing forward elections for the consuls for right. 451 gotcha. future year. Yeah. Um, so, and this is weird. Um, it seems a bit odd. And the, they, the tribunes are like, mm, okay, let's see how this goes. <laughs> Fair enough. And two front runners start to stand out. Mm -hmm. A guy called Appius Claudius. 
Oh, <laughs> yep, that tracks. Appius Claudius and Titus Janucius. Whose name we have also heard before. Yeah, so these are some figures that have come up for us before. Um, Appius Claudius. Now, there is some controversy over which Appius Claudius we're actually talking about. There's always in a controversy about this because there's so many Appius and they all, Claudiuses. They all have the same name. Yeah, and they're often similarly disposed. They are, they are. Yeah. This Appius Claudius is the son of Appius, grandson <laughs> of Marcus, yeah. Crassus, in religionensis Sabinus. Yeah. Now, he seems to be possibly conflated with a previous Appius Claudius. The Consul of 471. The Consul of 471. Yep. But there, so there's some quibbles that maybe this is the same Appius Claudius. Mm-hmm. He was quite a severe character. He was, yes. Um, but there seems to be some narrative benefit and also some just mathematical benefit for this being that Appius Claudius's son. Well, yeah, I mean, that is 20 years ago now. Yes. So, I mean, it's possible, but... But also a little bit unlikely, because... Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. uh, hey, there's just been a pestilence. I mean, <laughs> come on. Mm, yeah. Who's dead? Nobody knows. <laughs> yeah. um, so we think it's probably the sun. Um, and this will become clear, like, why this might be a good theory later on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Titus Janucius, you know... We're not really sure what's going on with the Janukii at this time. They seem to be it's a plebeian name. Yeah, it's definitely a name we've heard before. I don't think we've heard of this guy before. I don't think we've heard of yeah. this specific guy. But I, I remember the name Janukius. Yeah. yeah, and there seems to be some questions over whether this is a plebeian gens or a patrician gens. And actually, this raises lots of interesting questions when we get to the Decemvirs anyway. Well, this is, I mean, this is the thing that I'm grappling with with my account, because as we constantly talk about, but you just can't not talk about it, there is just so many, there are just so many question marks about who are the patrician, who are the plebeians, how did this conflict of the orders come about, and who's on which side? I do admit I like the theory that it's dangerous to say that this is all one conflict of the orders and they have all the same goals all the way through and it's always the same groups because it does last, spoiler alert, for a couple of hundred years. Um, you know, it flares up at certain times and you know dies down at other times. But really, it's like a rash. It is, yeah, it is. It is the rash that won't go away because penicillin does not exist. Um, and yeah, basically... So, yeah, it, it does make sense to me that the groups are going to change. What they're fighting for is going to change. I get that. But for you and I, <laughs> this time period right now... It's very confusing. It's so confusing because there are so many different theories about who these people are and what they're able to do. Um, and, and for the most part, we're just getting a list of names as well. Yeah, exactly. And some of these that we can cross-reference with the Fasti, yes. uh, which is great. But it doesn't actually help us understand anything about the characters or what their affiliations were. And as I say, I've read so many different theories about who these people are. Like some people see there being basically once the kings are out, um, you know, some academics see that in the first couple of decades of the Republic, you've got this group who are the patricians who start to close ranks and do what we've been talking about before and be really quite a solid group in terms of defending privileges and what they what they have access to versus what other people have access to. And the plebeians therefore arise in reaction to the patricians. So the mm. plebeians aren't a group that exist 
before the patricians exist. Yeah, potentially people who are responding to those in power and actually would like a share of that power for themselves. Yes. And maybe quite independently successful in various other ways. Exactly. And and definitely there seems to be... um, there seems to be a lot of discussion about the fact that we've got to be careful about how we talk about the plebeians because they probably are quite a diverse group. There probably are some people, as you say, who are in the city and are doing relatively well for themselves and aren't necessarily, you know, completely without a certain kind of power, but they just don't have exactly what they're looking for. They're shut out of a lot of things and therefore these well-to-do people are looking for a share in power versus the people who are rural um, and and they want... A different thing they want obviously a, a, a fairer cut of the pie i suppose they, they want things like land allotments and that sort of thing yeah yeah so that there are probably different concerns going on here and it's just so difficult to to try and pull it apart especially when you've got the layer of our sources being written so much later and after the gracchi brothers and all that drama about land allotments and tribunes of the plebs and their powers like it's just it's so hard to to pull this apart. I've read that many theories. My head is exploding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, even, I keep reading, and it is really fascinating. Period. And so, um, in the sense that I think actually this might be a good point to like um, actually wrap up this episode. Actually, because things are about to get more complicated. Absolutely. The one Just thing more I, complicated. The one thing I'm going to flag before we sign off, which mm. is about the whole patrician plebeian divide. So I mentioned to you that when they agreed that they were going to have this des- this decimate, mm-hmm. this um, board of ten uh, with no other magistrates, and there was debate about who was going to evolve patricians, plebeians. Because there is debate, as we've just flagged with Janukius, about whether plebeians actually did have more access to things like the Senate than we would be led to believe by accounts like Livy. Well, and we have to keep in mind that our sources are quite elite sources. Absolutely. They're writing from yeah. a huge position of privilege. And it seems that there's a reasonable case to be made that even if the... Because we have two decimverts. Yes, um, yes. That even if the first one is mostly patrician slash all patrician, that the second one doesn't seem to be at all. No. The second one seems to be half and half of plebeian names and patrician names. Which is bonkers. Which is, but also would make sense. It would make sense, but it's given the, given the narrative. Given the that way that could, this narrative yeah. has been shaped. Yeah, you're not expecting it. You're no. like, wait a minute. Because <laughs> the patricians, and this is what I mean about, you know, as we've talked about often with our accounts oversimplifying things and seeing things very much in terms of black and white patricians, plebeians, there's obviously so much more nuance. And I think... I think what we're heading towards right now is the is the tipping point where it's actually this might be where the black and white comes from. You know, when when everything starts to be written down and codified, things this, become solid. This might be where the black and white comes from. This might be where that patrician plebeian divide gets even sharper. Um, because there are real question marks in all the decades we've been talking about about how much access of um, to power plebeians actually have. Um, and whether there is perhaps a bit more blending than we have been led to believe. But the reason why I'm interested in that right now for the first decimate, which we are pretty sure at least our sources represent as holy patrician, is because the plebeians do agree to this in my account. They say, okay, after arguing back and forth that plebeians should be on it, which, as you say, would totally make sense, um, they say, okay, 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 we'll let you have all patricians. However, our conditions for that are that in this year where you're the only magistrates and there are no appeals, we don't want the Acilian law about the Aventine to be changed. We need that law kept in place. And all other sacred laws need to be kept in place. 
And we think this is a reference to the agreement about the Tribune of the Plebs, you know, existing. <laughs> so you can't place. just delete the Tribune of the Plebs exactly. now that you've got the chance. And the reason why I find that interesting is that some academics I have read have suggested that actually what we're seeing here is, and this would make sense given some of the things that have happened in some of the other episodes we've that we've talked about, that really this is the patricians, as we talked about, trying to really lock down a power. And one way of doing that would be to get rid of the tribunes who have risen oh definitely yeah um and and the Sicilian law again the way that our accounts represented it it seemed to be more about you know sacred space a temple to seri something like that but there are other accounts where actually this is maybe about you know land being given to the plebeians you know a a bit of a land allotment thing Mm -mm. potentially because it's a really unusual law to be named not after the consul, but after someone else. It's, everything about it is so unusual. And the Aventine being, you know, having that association with plebeians and that kind of stuff. It's So, yeah, we, we're not really sure what's going on here, but it's definitely clear that they're, they're trying to dig in and make sure that all the progress they've won so far, whatever the pro- that progress is, is secure going into this new phase. Mm. So that's that's where I'll wrap up, Dr. G. Ooh, things <laughs> yeah. to think about indeed. I, honestly, as I say, the more I read, the more I get confused about <laughs> the patricians and the plebeians and this conflict of the orders. But I think that's uh, that's. I think natural. it's par for the course it with is. this kind of stuff, to be honest. So, Dr. G, that means that it is once again time for the partial pick. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, ooh, ooh. Igor's very keen ooh, today. Ooh. My <laughs> the goodness. partial pick. All right, so I'll be trying to remember all the categories from the top of my head. Let's see how we go. <laughs> Military clout. That's a big fat zero. There is nothing going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Rome is in contention for 50 golden eagles. They can score 10 in each category. There are five categories. Yeah. And they so far are on the grand total of zero. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Um, there is a citizen score. You're skipping right to the end. I love it. Yeah. Uh, well, you, oh, yeah. so you remember the... Oh, you should say the categories then. <laughs> I'm, right. just saying, I'm just saying what I remember. We don't have to do it in order. That's all right. <laughs> citizen score. Okay, so... Uh, okay, we're doing two years together, which makes this a little bit tricky. On one hand, I think it would be absolutely terrible because you're living through a pestilence. <laughs> I think, yeah, we can only go up to where we've gotten up to in the episode. So we don't know what yet happens at the end of the year that we're currently in. No, no, no. What I, well, see, I actually am pretty much at the end. <laughs> I have no <laughs> well, idea. The I end. mean, kind, kind of, kind of. Yeah. Oh. I don't have a lot more. But I think that, first of all, there's a pestilence. Then there's famine. But there is actually finally something happening hope on the horizon yeah there's there is a codification of the laws happening which although you and i might take a bit of a cynical view about what that actually achieves it is something it's so, pretty big it's pretty big um i i, I wouldn't normally i would say zero but a lot but, of people have died so i feel like it's gonna be less than five i agree i i think maybe three three sounds good okay cool Diplomacy. Diplomacy. Not uh, really. Yeah, look, I mean, I don't think we've gotten into the big negotiation phase. And actually, technically, to have a set of decimvirs who have absolute uh, magisterial control and there's no recourse <laughs> to appeal yeah. on the horizon. It's kind of the opposite of diplomacy. Might, yeah, it kind of suggests that that's uh, not really happening. Yeah, okay, so nothing for that. Uh, expansion? Yep, oh, that's a big fact. Zero as well. Yep, yep, yeah. nothing. 
And then finally, Wirtus. Oh, Wirtus. Has yeah. anybody demonstrated Wirtus? I think Spurious Furious stepping in nobly as Suffolk Consul <laughs> and then sadly dying in the role is the greatest example of Wirtus that we've seen in this and last session. it's not really Wirtus at all. <laughs> it's not. No. It, no. It, nobody oh nobly God. dies, that's This is for sure. terrible, Dr. G. This is absolutely terrible. <laughs> I'm wondering, in in retrospect, now that we've already talked about it... That's pestilence for you, isn't it? You can't score highly on a pestilence. No, I mean, (laughs) yeah, this is terrible. It's it's three. Three Three. out of 50. Three out of 50. I've got my calculator here, (laughs) and I typed in one number. (laughs) It's a new low for ancient Rome. Well, that's what happens. Well, that's not surprising. That's how I feel about this year as well, to be honest. Well, this is the thing I was going to say. The only thing that we could maybe uh, wrap up on is that this is a reminder that as bad as things can get when you're living through a pestilence, and as much as it might screw up your economy and God knows what else, there is light at the end of the tunnel. You will come out of it. The question is, how do you want to come out of it? Yeah, what changes as a result of the coming out? Exactly. Yeah. And for the Romans, it's they're actually finally doing something. I don't think those two things are connected. But I hey. mean, I don't want to flag the possibility that some Romans would read the pestilence as a sign that the codification of the laws really should not be happening at all. No, and I don't, I don't think that, to be honest, the pestilence is the reason. I think it's just a, it's a coincidence. But the you, gods. you can choose to rebuild your world in a better way. So build back better, people. Build back better. Thank you for tuning in to this latest edition from The Partial Historians. It's Dr. G here, and I want to do a big shout out to all of our patrons on behalf of Dr. Rad and myself. So, without further ado, a huge thank you to Sean, Roman, Sharon, Joel, Tamara, Justine, Paul, Mark, CW, Teresa, Ensley, Savannah, Dana, Zera, Adri, Theodore, Gunnar, Jacob, Nick, and last but never least, somebody call who has entitled themselves. Find someone who looks at you the way the Optimates look at public land. Thank you, as always, for your support. We really appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed the show.